talk about a little bit of the storyline of the Great Commission. So I'm gonna jump out, I'm gonna jump around with a couple of these storylines as we go over these five finish lines and I'll write them out. So as you look at it, the number one finish line is that all people groups are reached. Where does this actually come from? Let's take a look at Acts 9. Let's go first to Acts 10, it's on your paper. I'll just read it. Acts 10, 34 through 35. Then Peter replied, I see very clearly that God has shown no favoritism. In every nation, he accepts those who fear him and do what is right. Peter was an apostle to the Israelites first. He was apostle to all of the Hebrews and the Jews, which were Judah's. They were the ones that came from South Israel. And so that's what he believed in this context. Everyone believed the only ones that can receive salvation are the Hebrews. It's the covenant of those with their father, Abraham. Those are the only ones that can do it. Everyone else is a Gentile. So if you look at Israel, even the Bible describes, the Lord describes Israel as the least of the people groups and the most insignificant. So it's not like he was saying they were like Rome. He was saying, These are, this is Israel. There is nothing about you besides my glory that made me choose you because he's so, he's so good. That's Israel. Everyone in Israel believed they were the only ones that could receive salvation. And then Peter gets this vision from God of, uh, you know, these four corner, kind of like a, a cloth or a tent or a blanket falling on earth. And then all these animals and all these unclean animals. And then he, the, the spirit tells them, go eat the animals. And Peter is a Israelite. You know, they separate their foods. They don't eat certain foods. And he said, well, how can I eat that food? I haven't touched anything unclean in my life. And he says, don't call, which is uh, clean, unclean. And so he awakens from the vision and he realizes the Lord is talking to him about the Gentiles. And he's saying that there's a man named Cornelius. And Cornelius is an honored man in the government who fears me. And you need to tell him that he, he can have the Holy Spirit and salvation. And so Peter at first is like, how am I going to talk to this guy? Like he's not a Jew, like he's actually going back and forth. And uh, over a period of time, he actually meets Cornelius. And then he starts telling him the gospel, a lot like how you guys did today or the other day. He starts sharing with it. And he's one of, not one, yeah, he's one of, one of the first Gentiles to hear the gospel. So in this context, in our context, he's one of the first unreached people groups because he's not a Jew. Anyone that wasn't a Jew or an Israelite was an unreached people group at this time because they're the ones that didn't have the gospel. And so it branches out and it gets bigger and bigger. Cornelius accepts Jesus. The power of the Holy Spirit falls on him. And uh, Peter goes back to all of the apostles and he starts telling them what just happened. All of the apostles look at Peter and say, you're crazy. Why would you talk to such unclean people? And Peter said, God shows no favoritism. And that's one of the beginning stepping stones of unreached people groups in the Bible. As you can see, I'm half Jewish, if you didn't know that. Did you guys know that? 
No, I'm not Jewish at all. So um, I'm so far from Jewish. I had one Jewish friend and I went to a bat mitzvah, like bar mitzvah once or something. So I'm not Jewish at all. How did I get the Bible? Well, how, how am I part of that whole thing then? It's because I was in unreached people group one day. And then somebody went to the Philippines and decided to preach the gospel, right? That's why a lot of you are Christian. How about you? You know a lot of people that don't have the gospel, right? Because you live in a country that's still unreached, along with you, right? That you're still part of this storyline, you see that? In Asia, we're like the only people that got the gospel. But there's still so many other countries that are really far away from it. And it's dangerous there. And you guys are gonna go to some of that soon. And that's part of the whole historical storyline there. Every time you start seeing a movement sprout, there's a leader that comes from those people. You'll always see it in a movement. Every place I go to, I'm looking for the native leader. I'm looking for the native apostle. Who is the one that's gonna bring this thing home? And so Apostle Paul was one of those people. He was like a Roman citizen. He was born in Rome. He was studied as a Pharisee. He was everything that um, you could have had as an accolade he had. And once he got saved, this is what it said about him. Acts 9, this is the, the first bullet. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, this man is a chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings to the people of Israel. And so if you look at this part of the scripture, he's saying, I've selected specifically this man to start a movement all over the entire planet where the Gentiles or everyone else that isn't Jewish to have the gospel. And then he starts sending out all the other apostles. The things with the other apostles, though, is that many of them didn't leave until they got persecuted. That's when they dispersed. It's uh, Acts 8, I believe. After a lot of persecution happened, uh, you watched the movie Apostle Paul, um, there was a big fire in Rome. And what they did, they used it as a scapegoat. Have you heard that word, scapegoat? It's a biblical term. In Old Testament, they would throw all of the sin or all of the crime on a goat, and they would call it an, a scapegoat. And then the goat would take all of the punishment. The Christians were the scapegoat for the fire in Rome. That's what Nero did. And so when that happened, they started killing Christians a lot, all over the place, like you saw in the movie, and until now. And so that whole area was taken out that way. That's when the apostles left. It's around that same period of time. That's when they went to India and all these other things. Let's go a little bit further. Let's go ahead and go into some Old Testament. Let's check out Daniel. Um, Daniel, he is a picture of like a Jesus in Christology. He's not Jesus. He's just a prophetic picture. Christology states everything in the Bible points to Jesus. Everything can point to God. That's how the Bible is arranged. De um, Nebuchadnezzar and Darius and the kings of Babylon represented demonic, represented Satan, basically. They represented prof a prophetic illustration of the kingdom of Babylon or the harlot Satan, the harlot Babylon. And so, um, you know the whole story. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. He, he lived. And when he came out, King Darius actually liked Daniel. He, was a, he, he respected him. 
because he was such an honorable, pure man. And he didn't want him to die. But what happens with Daniel is that he didn't die. The king himself reaches his hand into the pit and pulls him out. And when he pulls him out, he gives this line to him. The King Darius wrote to all peoples, nations, and languages, and dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. And that's essentially the same line that Nebuchadnezzar said to Daniel as well. And so what you see there is a prophetic picture, an illustration that at one point, all of the kingdoms of earth will bow down to Jesus. All of those nations you see on that map that are darkened by the lack of evangelism, they are prophesied to fall on their knees, on their face to Jesus Christ. That's essentially what's happening there. That's what he's saying in the Old Testament here. Let's go ahead and read another one. This one is essentially, I, don't, I think, you guys ever heard of the millennial kingdom? All right, so without getting into too much of that, this is um, Isaiah 2. So Isaiah, they look at Isaiah and they say that when he spoke the Bible, or when he spoke the, the words of Isaiah, it's an entire picture of the whole Bible, which is really interesting. You could find the whole storyline, the whole prophetic storyline in Isaiah. And so in Isaiah, he begins by prophesying about something called the mountain of the Lord. And when he speaks about this mountain of the Lord, it says that Jesus will be sitting on the throne of the mountain of the Lord, which is David's throne. And from that mountain, he will actually be taking in the leaders of the world and he'll be giving them wisdom on how they're supposed to run their city or their country. And he'll be giving them 100% unfiltered godly wisdom. That's essentially what the millennial kingdom's talking about. And so it says here that every single nation will come to Jesus. They'll flow in and out and they'll ask the king of kings for wisdom. That's what it says the end result will be. So let's go ahead and read it. Isaiah 2.2, 2, now it shall come to pass in the latter days, the latter days, right? That's the, the last days. That the mountain of the Lord shall, shall be established on the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above all hills and all the nations shall flow to it. So that's the picture of what you see as Jesus. All of these people groups will be coming to Jesus. And how do they get there? The first part is they get reached. So all of these prophetic pictures here, everything in the Bible is built on the word that I gave you, how beautiful are the feet that spread the good news. You see, if we don't do this work, he doesn't get these prophecies. All of this stuff, the way that, the way you have to see global missions is if we don't do the work, these things don't happen. But what the Lord is prophesying is that there will be a people that will have beautiful feet that will do this work and they will be my pure and spotless bride. The question that we have for us is will we be those people? That's what we ask ourselves. There's many, many things we could do with our life. There's many things that we want to do with our life. There's many challenges in our life. But when God judges the whole earth, are we going to be the ones that are part of this storyline?
That's what you wanna ask yourself. And that's why I wanna give you a lot of scripture from the Old Testament, from the New Testament, from the whole storyline, because when you see the whole storyline, you realize this isn't a call to all YWAM movement. This is bigger than that. This isn't a bunch of Westerners or Americans or whatever going to different countries and talking in Asia. It's not about even just one country in Asia hearing the gospel. It's an entire storyline that if we miss it, when we go to heaven, you're gonna see everybody that didn't miss it. And the one thing I would hate to do is like this, right? Oh, you kind of wouldn't hate it, but there'll be a remorse. Let's say Bobby, right? Bobby gets this message and he's like, I have to spend the rest of my life getting the love of Jesus to these places where they don't exist. And that can mean a lot of things. It doesn't mean he has to necessarily go, but it means somewhere in his destiny, he's going to fully own the Great Commission. There is going to be something he does that owns every place where the gospel is not and to whatever role that is. And when Bobby does that, he gets a special reward for persevering that way. He gets like a pillar in heaven. He gets like a garment. He gets like a crown of righteousness. He might get like a, a precious stone that nobody else will know what's written on it except you and Jesus. And when he's rewarded it with it, everybody in all of creation will see him get it straight from the hands of Jesus. And so there was someone that recently just died in India uh, for bringing the gospel to a, a, an island that never had the gospel. And I don't, at this point, I don't think anyone got saved. I don't think any church was planted. But somewhere, he was, uh, they did research on him. He came from all nations, and he was studying this people group very diligently. And somewhere between him dying and his life, he decided, this is where I'm supposed to be going. And he may have not established a church in his own life, but I can almost guarantee there'll be a reward that he'll receive when he meets Jesus. And you will see there's these people in the Bible that get, scar they get purple robes. They're all of the ones that died for God. And I bet you they look beautiful. Like, I, if there's one thing about them is that they probably don't look ugly. Like, if you're in your resurrected body and you got one of these purple garments of martyrdom, and these are the ones that died to Jesus that are under the altar of God, crying out to him, when will you, re when will you restore our blood? When will you avenge our blood? And only these specific people have it. I bet they look like when you see them, you might want one. That's just, you ever see someone's new watch? You're like, wow, that's a nice watch. I can't afford it. Or you ever see someone driving? You know, you get your visa or something, and you go to a really nice area, and you might be driving in a Rolls Royce. I don't know if you've seen those there. Or like the Ferrari or something. And you're like, man, that's a really nice car. I don't know if I'll ever have that much money in my whole life. And you like, look at it. And you're like, man. How am I ever going to get that car? Well, I guess I won't. Because maybe, maybe you think you want, you'll never get rich or whatever. Maybe you're not going to get it. But the way that Jesus does these rewards is a little different. It's not based on how much money you have. It's built on how much sacrifice you give to his name. 
How much blood will you pay for the love of Jesus Christ to be known to the ends of the earth? When we think of our struggles, they are very small. Here's something that, um, what's his name? Churchill said. He said, small men have small battles and large men have great battles. And then he looked at his army and said, men, I fear that our battles are too small. If you don't know Churchill, he's the one that fought in World War II against Hitler. And so here you're looking at that. Our struggles, they may be so small compared to what the Lord is doing over the entire earth. When we look at the heart of Jesus Christ for all of these people, what are we really prioritizing in our life? What's really important, right? Because I guarantee you, God, when he looks at these people, he's not seeing numbers. He's not seeing an outreach. He's looking at all of his children that don't know they have a father. He's looking at his bride that don't know that they have a bridegroom. There's an incredibly deep attachment that the creator has to all of his creation. It says this, I always, I always share this. It says in the Bible that the kingdom of heaven is like a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and the 99 are with them. But a good shepherd, does it he go after the one? But there's more than one, isn't there? There's four billion of them. How much do you think his heart breaks for those three, four billion people? That's how much our heart needs to break for everything that we need to do. Once, honestly, it's easier to get it when you go there and you start seeing it and you start, you know, doing the whole thing. But, you know, even beyond physical experience, a lot of it starts from prayer. Everything begins with prayer. As we start praying for people, that's when we start loving people the way Jesus loves people. And that, if that's the one thing you got from DTS, where your heart breaks so much for the lost and those that don't have the gospel, that your whole life changes, it doesn't mean you have to join YWAM, but you've made a decision in your life that I have to do what the Lord's heart is for. Uh, that would be the greatest success you would ever have. Doesn't mean you have to do a specific thing, but it's a, it's a heart posture that will dictate the rest of your life. And then as you look at Jesus, our heart is judged by our actions in the end of the day. All right, let's go ahead a little bit further. So I'm gonna write out the first finish line is that all people groups would be reached. Which, it's a big movement, right? It's not like one person doing it. Um, as you saw it called all, or Table 71, it's a movement of the whole body. That's what we're looking at. So even here in the Philippines, it's not like we're trying to just do the Filipino church. You understand that? It's, a, it's bigger than all of this. It's way bigger than Maragondon. It's way bigger than Taguig. It's way bigger than the Philippines. It's history in the making. That's what we're doing right now. There's only certain things that will be in the headlines of eternal, the eternal newspaper. And I guarantee you, most of it won't be the stuff we read on the news. The headlines of the newspapers are built on the people that Jesus loves, which is all these people we're talking about and us. 
It's when things happen with these people that have never encountered his love. History is being made for eternity. You can have all of the technological advances. You can have all of the economical advances, all of the country GDP advances, all of these things that even the, the UN measures on how successful a country is being ran or how successful a business is being ran. But if you remember in Genesis 4, I believe, with Cain's bloodline, all of that was there already. He was the first musician. He was the first government leader. He was the first commander. He was the first economical strategist. All of Cain's bloodline was all of the spheres first. And then if you look at Adam's bloodline, they were the first ones that cried out to God. There's only certain things that are recorded into eternity. How much of our life is eternal? That's what you want to be asking yourself. Am I doing something that's not changing eternal history? You only got one shot at this life. There's no purgatory, right? Josh preached that yesterday or two days ago. That's all you got. What will you do with it? The last thing I would, I would hate to see is look at a man that was beaten. And they said that Paul was like four and a half feet tall. They say that when you look at him, he doesn't even look like a man because he was stoned and beaten and whipped so much. He was disfigured as a human being. I would hate to stand beside one of those men and talk about what I did with God. If I was living lukewarm, if I was living cold, if I was living like, oh, just someone else will do it. And then you see a four and a half foot human being completely devastated for the love of Jesus Christ and other people. And then you'll think about what we did with our life of a vapor. And I, 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 I desperately do not want to be that man. And that's the way I think God wants all of us to be. He wants us to redeem the time that we live in. Let's go ahead and think about the next finish line, which is the Bible for all. I'm not going to go over everything here, um, but I'm going to go over this one section that's really powerful. It's in the Old Testament. The, in the Old Testament, they didn't have the New Testament, <laughs> if, you, if you didn't know that. All right, so in the Old Testament, they didn't have the New Testament. They had like the first five if they wrote it already. And in this, in this case, they did. And so Josiah was a really young man. He was below the age of 21. I think he was 18, um, if, if, if not lower. And all of the kings were pagans. They're, they're coming in and out. If you read the book of Kings, the reason why they call it kings was because all of the kings were falling back and forth and worshiping Jesus or worshiping the Lord as in worshiping pagan gods like Moloch and Baal. Back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. And then if you see judges, they do the exact same thing. That's the, that's the Israelites that we're speaking about. And even us, we do the same thing too. And so in Josiah, he, he's starting to look through the old temples. He sends guys to look through the old temples that they built. And they start finding something. And they find the book of the law, which is the Bible. And they didn't have that before. So they just had what they thought they were supposed to be doing. And then they had all of these pagan rituals, like burning of incense at the mountains, sacrificing babies, sleeping with multiple wives, all of these pagan and wicked rituals. That's what they lived by. 
And so Josiah is coming in as a king looking at this whole thing that's happening. But he doesn't know what to judge it by because there's no Bible, there's no book of the law in, in his context. And let's go ahead and read 2 Kings 22, 8. Hilkiah, the high priest said to Shaphan, the court secretary, I have found the book of the law in the Lord's temple. Then Hekiah gave the scroll to Shephin, and he read it. And when the king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. And then he says this, go to the temple, speak to the Lord for me and for the people of all Judah. Inquire about the words written in this scroll that has been found. For the Lord's great anger is burning against us because our ancestors have not obeyed the words of this scroll. We have not been doing everything that must be done. That's the response when you see the word of God. When you see the word of God, you're broken. If what they used to do, and they still do it in some places, is they would literally tear their garments. And then they would ash, put ashes all over their body. And they would even have, quote unquote, professional women wailers that would come and cry to, to give, not the ambience, but to give the soul, the spirit, the experience that we are in grave despair right now. That's what Josiah did there. If you can imagine, I don't know exactly the extent of all of their pagan rituals, but I'm pretty sure it's probably pretty high with the Philistines and all of these other pagan gods around them. If you look at the pagans, uh, some of these kings, every law you break, you die. Some of these kings are like that. If you look at the law of the Hebrews, the, the, the original uh, Pentateuch in Deuteronomy, there's only, I could be wrong, don't quote me, but I'm pretty sure it's below 75 laws that, make, that have you killed. Out of every single, I forgot exactly how many hundreds of laws there are, there's hundreds of laws, but out of them, only a few percentage of them are things that uh, get you killed. Around them, every single, if you look at Nebuchadnezzar, right? He said, if you don't understand what my dream is, if you can't tell me what it is, I make a decree that I will chop your whole family up into pieces and I'll burn you. That's the type of stuff that they were doing in their days. He, he, they made a decree or they, made, they had these laws where to appease the God of Moloch, they would have to kill and sacrifice newborn babies and all of these different types of things. And so if you could look at it, but then he finally found the Bible. He found the book of the law. And when he realized what he has been doing dis is um, despairs or brings wrath against them, he felt God's heart for them. Now here's the question. We have the Bible. So we kind of know what it's supposed to look like. What about all these other countries or these people that don't? You know, the most people, they won't be able to read. In some of these areas that we go to, they won't even know their age. Because that, that, that word doesn't exist. And so the education is really low. But if you could even, if you even thought about it with the everything skit, right? How, how maybe not super clearly with everything, but how it really explains the heart of Jesus. 
uh, towards sin and our heart and what we've done to walk away from him. And I bet you in this generation, we have thousands, if not millions more of those type of things. And they're just waiting to be born. Um, I was talking with Taylor, I think. And um, I was talking about my music because I, I like my music, right? And um, we were going back and forth on a couple of things, but I was, I was praying with God earlier and I was asking the Lord, well, what if I sold my music and used it as a way of being, you know, living on support for missions? And so I kind of went back and forth with him with the numbers, right? And so if I were to live off of my music by digital sales and some CDs and stuff, I'd have to sell 365,000 copies a year. So that would make me somewhat platinum a bit. <laughs> that would make me actually pretty good. So um, that's, that's really high. Your average indie singer, I think, is gold if they sell like 5,000, like an indie singer. And so I was like, okay, that's 365,000. That's really big. And I was like, man, maybe if I, if I make my music for a different crowd, that might work. Because I, I, my songs, literally tens of thousands of people have heard already. Guess how many sales I have? Like 200 or something. That's in the last eight years or something like that. Or six years or something like that. You know why? Because everywhere I go, they're not going to buy anything. Because they could barely live. So I was, I was thinking in my head, well, maybe if I just devote my time creating a strong audience outside of my work, then maybe I might get some more traction. But I want you to think about the last week, right? You guys went in front of maybe two, 3,000 people, maybe 2,000 people. And to gig, you'll go in front of maybe not all at once, but us collectively will be in front of 20,000 people. So right now, I'm uh, this year, 2018, for eight months, we were in front of 127,000 people. And so anyone that's ever led on the field, <laughs> right, Aldrin and Rema, uh, yeah, yeah, remember that? Yeah, they look, they're, they're running away from me. <laughs> so like, yeah, anyone that's ever led on the field that sets up all this stuff and does it knows how hard this stuff is. This stuff ain't easy. Like my schedule this week is I'm gonna go with Jarl and Genesis from like 8 a.m. to like uh, 3 or 4 p.m. every day, and then I'm gonna get here at 6 so I can teach you guys. And then I have to set all that stuff up because we're gonna have 150 missionaries reach out to 10, 20,000 people. And it's a lot of work. So for 10, 20,000 people, it's a lot of work. Now, if I switched that and decided to go to 10 to 20,000 people that might buy my stuff, I know how much work that takes. I won't have enough work to do my work. But that's the, that's the thing you have to think about. You can't do two things. The amount of work necessary to reach these people will require your entire life. It's not a part-time thing. The, the Great Commission, I love, this, I love this line. I think it was, um, I saw it on Facebook actually. Um, one of the last DTS students posted it that the Great Commission won't be finished by spare time and spare money. Never be finished. If imagine, I want you to imagine this, right? Close your eyes. I want you to imagine an army of people. Whoa. 
right? Millions, two million people, just lots and lots of people. Now I want you to imagine all of them are saying, I will give every single cent and every single minute of my spare time to finish the Great Commission. How much do you think that army will get done? Nothing. Because what's your spare time? How much can you do on your spare time? Right? You can barely call your family on your spare time. You're not going to go finish a great commission on your spare time. And so that's what's going to happen with this great commission. The people that finish this thing give their life to this thing. That's how it works. And we're going to talk a little bit about that towards the end of the week. All right. Anyways, I'm going to go over a little bit of these. I'm going to zoom in a little bit more. So let's go into number two, which is Bible for all. That's what we just did. Every single people group um, reached every Bible for all. The next one is evangelism for all. I feel like the Lord is going to do a marking with us right now. And so I'm going to go ahead and just write these on the board. But then I, I want us to go into a time of prayer. I actually didn't plan this. I, obviously, you could see I didn't plan this. I had like 20 pages here. So, um, but I feel like he's going to tell you something right now. And I can't tell you it. But he's going to tell you something that's going to be incredibly important. And um, I'm going to write this out so we have a little bit of um, you know, closure with this. This is a church for all, and I'm going to explain it more on a summary. And then this is compassion for all. All right, so this isn't the work of one person again, but this is the work of um, these numbers are. This is a very simplified version. I want you to um, open up your manual to um, the page of the Philippines. Then I want you to look at the page next to it, and then we're going to go into prayer. Oh, it's uh, 1.3, not 1.8. Okay, so this is, let's say if you take all the people groups alone, right? If you take China and India, that is 2.5 billion people. So I just want you to think about one country like or two countries like China or India, and for this to happen in one country of that massive of a size is already a lot of work. There's a lot that needs to be done. There's a lot of sacrifice that needs to be made for this to even happen. And in, these, in those type of countries, that's what's happening. But in any country, it's like that. And that's what I shared about the other day. Let's go ahead and go down a little bit more on this stats. Um, people groups, there's 16,591 people groups. The amount of unreached people groups is 6,741. I think they're scaling that from the 2%. And this, so it depends on which way you're looking at it. But the percentage of the world's UPGs, unreached people groups, make up 42% of the world's population. I had a dream, not a dream dream, but I had like a, there's something in my heart that when Ariella went to some of these countries, she was a little freaked out at first. She went to um, like a Muslim country, and then you would hear the, the prayers, right? And then she would wake up at like 4 a.m. or midnight, because they do it a lot, and then she would just start crying every time that they would do the prayers to Allah. 
And so she knew that there was something, there was something that's not normal. Like, what is that? There's, there's, that's not happening on Jesus' love garden, right? So what, what's happening here now, right? And then she went to the mall and she saw all these women with veils. And she looked at them and she was like, like, she was like, why are they looking like, like, why are they dressed like that? And then she went to um, other countries too, like a Hindu country or something, right? And then she was kind of thrown off at first. And so me and Claudia, we had a big prayer. We were like, Lord, we pray that Ariella would know that these are ones that the Lord loves and that she would develop a heart to love them too. And so when she would play with them, we wouldn't stop her, right? Sometimes here in the Philippines, they even preach that Muslims are reprobate. They'll never get saved. So that's why they don't reach them because they think they're going to get saved or they think they're going to get killed, which you might. So like, um, yeah, it's all these things, right? So then there becomes this fear for these people. But I looked at Ariel at the age of, well, at this point, it was like one and a half or something. And I was, uh, I was talking with Claudia and, and the Lord. And I said, we can't raise her that way. And so when she goes to these different countries, she starts making a bunch of friends. She starts meeting a bunch of different women. She starts having the older men like play with her and talk to her and all this stuff in Muslim and Hindu and Buddhist countries. And she's going to grow up knowing that these are people and they're not aliens. They're not people you're supposed to be afraid of, but they're people we're supposed to not only pray for, but we're supposed to be the love of Jesus to them. We're supposed to make relationships with them. We're supposed to help their family and serve them. That's the way that when she grows up, well, right now she's like that already. Um, it's kind of funny. It's not super missional, but she was uh, being, we, uh, there was this Muslim lady that was holding her and she said to Claudia, can I, can I hold your baby? And she was completely, completely veiled in all black. And uh, Claudia, of course, said, uh, yeah, of course you can hold my baby. <laughs> but she's like, <laughs> then, uh, so anyway, she holds, she holds Ariella's, Ariella. And Ariella, being the cute little fat cheeks that she is, she went over, she looked at her, she was like this. And she was like, look at her, like, she was like that. And then she just, we had this one picture where she goes like this. So it's like snap, 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 snap. And it's like taking off her whole veil. And the, whole, the next snap is like, she's like trying to keep her thing on and she's trying not to like run away and all this stuff. And then, um, yeah, she, she did that a couple of times actually. Uh, but she's not afraid of them, right? But you could raise your daughter another way, right? You could teach them different things. But that's not what the Lord wants for Ariella. Ariel is like this. I had a vision. Ugh. All my visions of my daughter. I had this vision when she was, she couldn't even walk. Right? She couldn't even walk. This is what she did with me. When she was born, the first day, the first moment I held her, I held her like this because all of them say, Daddy's, uh, babies like it when your daddy cuddles with them. And I was like, oh, I can't wait to do that with my little baby. Come here, my little baby. So then I held my little baby. And then guess what she did? She pushed me off. And I was like, so I held her again. And then she kept pushing me. And I was like, you need to calm down, little girl. And then she was born. She was just born. And then guess what she does? She takes me and then she flips me. She, she flips herself over. So I'm holding her like this now. And then she starts pointing to the window, she starts pointing outside, she starts pointing everywhere. 
And I'm all like, so I have to take her there now. So I'm walking there, I'm walking, I'm walking. And then the Lord gives me a vision where uh, she's in a playpen. And then he says, every boundary that's placed on her, she's going to want to cross. Not, well, sometimes even character, but she, he's talking about everything because she's, she's, she's meant to be a pioneer. So then he said, you can't stop her from wanting to do that. You got to teach her wisdom on how to do that right. And so I'm talking to her. I'm talking to God. Well, I talked to her too. And then um, the second Ariella finds out what this thing is, she's going to be one of the first people that go. The second she finds out there's a place on the planet that nobody wants to go, the first thing she's going to do is try and figure out how to get there. That's just how she's going to be. I just know it, right? You got anyone that played with her, you know she's like that. She'll run the place where you're not supposed to go. If you have this nice little playpen or something, she'll run outside of it. Any place that you try and give her, she'll try and go out of it because that's the way she is. But that's because, and so when I'm talking to her about this type of stuff, well, not yet, but when I'm raising her, I'm thinking about this. Because you're raising a generation that will be unafraid to finish the Great Commission. That's what you're doing.